following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Deuteronomy chapter 9. People are like, he just said that. He, he did. Yeah, it did. <clears throat> As you're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, I was reminded of a story of a young man named Isaac. He lived in a small town, uh, and Isaac was known for being prideful and arrogant. On the count of three, I want you to say the most prideful and arrogant person you know. Just kidding. Please don't. <clears throat> Isaac believed that he was better than everyone else. If you didn't have a name, a name's starting to formulate in your mind. And Isaac deserved, uh, thought that he deserved the best things in life. One day, Isaac heard about a wise old man who lived in a nearby town who was known for his wisdom and his insight. And so Isaac thought to himself, I know what I'll do. Because the people from the town were kind of getting tired of listening to Isaac talk about all of his accomplishments. He says, I'm going to go to this other town, and I'm going to see this wise old man, and I will tell him everything that I've ever done. And he will look at me, and he'll say, truly, Isaac, you are the most awesome person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And so sure enough, he arrives at the old man's house. He knocks on the door, and he's greeted with kindness and hospitality. The old man kind of looked like the guy from Up. <laughs> the man welcomes him into his house. He sits Isaac down. He pours him a cup of coffee and he listens to Isaac just constantly talk, 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 talk. Now, old man's kind of listening to him and these boasts about his accomplishments. And he says, Isaac, I have a garden that's outside of my house. I want you to follow me to that garden. I want to just give you a little test. So he takes Isaac out to his garden. He shows him a small seed and he asks Isaac to take that small seed and put it into the dirt, and then in a week's time, when he comes back, he'll say, let's see how great you are based off of how much this seed grows. Isaac, being very arrogant, says, absolutely, shoves the seed into the soil, and then leaves. And a week later, he comes back. And the old man walks him through the house. They go to the backyard, and he says, where's my seed. And so the old man shows him, puts him a cup in front of him, and he says, this is your seed. <laughs> Isaac sees that the seed hadn't grown into a plant, but it's just a little blade of grass, <laughs> if that. The old man's got kind of a smirk on his face, too, right? Old man, you love that, don't you, when you do that? And Isaac's so humbled, and he realizes the lesson that the man was trying to teach him about his pride. See, Isaac had this thing, and it was called a self-righteous spirit. And the older I get, the more I would love to say that I would be a person who would be in the front row when Jesus walked the face of the earth. The more I'm starting to think I would probably be a Pharisee who sits in the temple. And when Isaac learns of his self-righteous spirit, and when we read the Bible, whether that's Deuteronomy or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it doesn't matter. We realize that all of us have these self-righteous spirits. 
And that true wisdom and greatness doesn't come from boasting or bragging, but it comes from being humble and willing to learn and to grow. And so just like Isaac, we look at the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we realize that all of us struggle with pride and disobedience. And really, uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9 is going to partner with Deuteronomy chapter 8, what we talked about last week. But when we look at these and we get to these messages, I think sometimes we're like, oh, I know a guy, right? Or I know a girl. This would be perfect for them. This is one of those sermons you share with somebody else, and you're like, hey, you should definitely listen to this. It's got you written all over it. But then when I look at it, I'm like, over and over again, I was studying Deuteronomy 9. It was like, the Lord was like, Jordan, I'm talking to you. I want to talk to you. And so today, I think the Lord wants to talk to you too as well. Because we can learn from humble obedience and following God's ways, trusting in Christ. Here's where we get wisdom and guidance to overcome these self-righteous spirits. I think when we got saved, we thought that they would just go away. And then the more we walk with Christ, the more we realize they're still kind of there, right? And this fight with this flesh. And how do I live a life that honors the Lord? So today we're, always, we're talking about how to overcome a self-righteous spirit as we stare into the cup of this little blade of grass that we present to Jesus as an offering. This is what I got. Deuteronomy starts in chapter 9, verse 1 through 6, with keeping your ego in check. <laughs> we'll just get right to the point, right? In Numbers chapter 13, verse 26, all the way up to Numbers 14, verse 4, Israel is shocked to hear about a report of 12 spies. Now, remember, Israel's kind of at the, at the, the banks here looking into the promised land, and they're, they're promised that, but it's not just something that they can walk into, right? You remember that? There's these people who populate the promised land, and they're called Canaanites. And the Canaanites are not good people. They don't love the Lord. They have idols. They have all of these things. And in Numbers chapter 13, there was a report of the Canaanites of 12 spies that talked about their size and their strength and their number. There's Canaanites in your life right now. Amen? There's people who you look at and you think they're bigger than you, they're stronger than you, and there's more of them than you. And Moses doesn't want the Israelites to be surprised or underestimate the task that's before them. And so he's going to stress again for the second time how from a human point of view, their victory is impossible. Look at verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. That's not Pastor Jordan, that's just Jordan River. And you're to go into dispossessed nations greater mightier than you. What a good pep talk, right? I mean, that's like coach of the year status right there. We're going to go and we're going to have this opportunity to to defeat the enemy, but they're bigger than you and they're definitely going to pummel you. But even though the Canaanites had everything from an earthly viewpoint, they're hopeless. Just as the Lord goes before the Israelites in a desert in a pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus chapter 13, he's going to do the same to Canaan. Now look at verse 3. Know therefore today, this is so good, church, this is so good. Know therefore today that he goes over before you as a consuming fire. He is the Lord your God. 
He will destroy them and subdue them before you. You shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Whatever fear that you're facing in this world, whatever's coming up this week, whatever you got, you need to tell your ego and put it in check and look at those words in Deuteronomy chapter 3 that my God is a consuming fire. He is the Lord my God. He will destroy whatever is before me. I believe it with all of my heart. This is the same passage that parallels Proverbs chapter 21. It says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory rests with the Lord. That's, that's, that's good, right? That, those are good words. All of these passages let us know right from the beginning that following the Lord requires trusting the Lord over yourself. You have to have faith. Remember, we look at the Old Testament with New Testament eyes in the lens of being a believer, having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we trust in the Lord, that he knows what's best when we battle our enemies. God supplies everything, not ourselves. You need to tell yourself that this week in whatever battle you're facing. That my God will supply everything that I need, not what I want. Amen? There's there's a difference between what you need and what you want. Now notice that God didn't want the Israelites to show mercy to the Canaanites. This is the God I serve. Some people don't like the God of the Old Testament, and they forget the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, same God, right? But I like the God of the Old Testament, right? Because when you're on his side, man, there's, there's no stopping you. He wants Israel to be a unique army against the Canaanites and their culture. Now, let's dig in a little bit to the Canaanite culture. The Canaanite culture is so depraved that it deserves God's judgment. There's an archaeologist, his name is William Albright, and he has a book from the Stone Age to Christianity. Now, listen to the parallels between Canaan and America today. William Albright says, The primary focus of the Canaanite religion was sexual impurity. Archaeologists have recovered hundreds of thousands of sexually suggestive and homosexual relics from the Canaanites associated with cults. The Canaanites worshipped a cult of fertility in the form of a serpent, in the form of symbols, in the form of sensuous absurdities and gross mythology, and they needed to be replaced. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart... After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So while completely wiping out all this impurity and experiencing victory, Israel is not supposed to become proud. Now here's how this works in our life. Every victory that you have had this past month, two months, whatever the case is, every victory that you're experiencing now, every victory that you will experience until the day you die, was not your own doing. It was the Lord's. God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But what happens is our ego gets inflated because we get some victories and we think to ourselves, look at what I did. God's like, it's nothing what you did. It is everything what I did. So in 4 through 6, verse 4, 5, and 6, Moses warns Israel of the danger of developing this self-righteous spirit, making sure they knew their victories were not because of their righteousness, but They were the Lord's. So Moses gives two ways for Israel and us to keep that self-righteous spirit and ego in check. Two ways. Number one, we already read verse four, but we could also read verse six. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You're telling me God didn't give me that job because I'm righteous? You're telling me that God didn't give me my wife because I'm righteous? You're telling me that God didn't give me things in this world because I'm righteous? No. The New Living Translation translate verse 4. Don't say the Lord has given us this land because we're such good people. If anything, the Israelites are stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're unresponsive. Moses later points this out, that the Israelites in 13 and 14 deserve to be destroyed. Now, Paul says it even better in Romans chapter 7. I don't know if I'm allowed to say even better, by the way, like if one book's better than the other one. But I like, let's just say, I like how Paul words it in Romans chapter 7. He says, as he's staring in his bathroom mirror, I know that nothing good lives in me. Now, this is negative self-esteem if we were talking about it in the world's point of view. And the world doesn't like that. It is my sinful nature that nothing good dwells in me. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Anybody relate to that? You'd like amen that? Like that's like every day. And then he writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And he says, but God, being rich in his mercy, now here's self-esteem. But it's not self-esteem, it's spirit esteem. It is given to us by the indwelling of the spirit. It's not I, it is God. But God, but God, but God. You need to say that in your life every single second. Being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead in my trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. I'm not good people. I simply have a great God. My ego needs to hear that always. Over and over, minute by minute. I do not come down the stairs and look at my wife and say, aren't you blessed this morning to be in a relationship with me? Because she would look back at me and say, by grace. (laughs) We are not victorious in anything because we are good people. There's no good person. There's only godly and ungodly. Then he says in verse 5, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess that land. But because of the wickedness of the nations of the Lord, your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You're getting in because of a promise. So the second way you keep your self-righteous spirit in check is you know that you're victorious because God kept his promise. Thank you, Lord. God would give Israel victory because he promised it to the patriarchs. This speaks of both God's judgment of the wicked Amorites and the promises of the land to Abraham. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And if you have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ, you get to rest in those promises. You're victorious because God's promise has come to fruition. Back to Paul, to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 15, verse 8, declares. I'm waiting. 
So like, like let the people go, right? <laughs> like he's parting. The, see, look at that. I parted the whole entire. No, just kidding. <clears throat> Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs. So Israel and us should never develop a self-righteous attitude because any victory we have comes because of our enemy's wickedness, God's promises, and his grace. That's the first way to keep your ego in check. Let's remove this self-righteous spirit. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. Then he says, let's go talk about this grace. Verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. You ever provoked God to wrath? Would not recommend it. <laughs> like, uh, don't poke the bear, right? You ever heard that? Moses gives some examples here to demonstrate how Israel, verse 6, is a stiff-necked people. 7 through 21 is a summary of the golden calf. For those of you who have no idea what that is, for Israel to even start to assume that the promised land was a reward for their righteousness, Moses brings up the past like a good dad, right? You remember what happened? You remember? You remember what transpired here? Well, let's talk about it. There was this thing called a golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. On Mount Horeb, Moses is fasting and receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Below, the people are feasting and breaking God's law. Isn't that funny? After seeing, God's disobe- after seeing the people's disobedience, Moses breaks the two tablets, illustrating what the people did in regards to the promise that they made with God. We call that a covenant. God's so upset by the people's corruptions, he wants to destroy the nations and start over with Moses. Now, if Moses has any hint of pride or is even remotely a sinful human being, which he is, he would have that tendency to say, yeah, God, let's start over with me. But he's a fantastic leader. And he says, let's not do that. Because when we study the Old Testament, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, we have to look at Moses as a Christ-like figure. Moses fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, which was normal for people to do in times of repentance. He does it just like Christ will do in the New Testament. Moses' fasting demonstrates his unity with the nation and the horror of their sin. Same could be said about Christ. The people's evil had provoked God to anger, verse 18 through 20. They need intervention. So the Lord listens to Moses just like he listens to Christ's offering of atonement for the sin of the world at crucifixion. There's so much parallel between what's happening in the golden calf story and what happens in the New Testament time. Moses demolishes the golden calf and he illustrates to the people that they deserved destruction. Only God's grace, though, prayed for by Moses' intercession, saved the people, which is exactly what Christ did on the cross. So what are you getting at? Jesus constantly displays mastery over his human nature so we would live every moment directed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We look at Jesus when he came and when he died on the cross and we say, that blood that was shed on the cross was for my sin. And that's true. That blood that was shed on the cross is for our sin. But we forget the life of Christ and how he set an example for us One being not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. And he did that by living off grace. 
Here's the deal. If Jesus didn't rely on his flesh to live in obedience to God, then you can't either. You need Christ. So the first thing that we see from verse 7 through 29 is you never forget the grace of God in regards to the fact that I need him daily, minute by minute. Now Moses keeps going. Look at verse 24. Moses could have carried on forever. He talks about times when Israel angered the Lord, but we're going to narrow it down to three. You have Terabeth, which is where the people complained about their hardships. You have Manasseh, which is where the people complained about no water. And then you have Kilbroth, uh, Haviah, which is where the people complained about manna, which is food. So In case you didn't resonate with the Israelites in the Old Testament, let's just take a small little quiz right now. Have you ever complained about your hardship? Have you ever complained that you're thirsty? Have you ever complained about the fact that you're hungry? So all those basic needs right there, right? We all would say, yep, that's me. Moses completely justified that at every single turn of Israel's history, they were rebellious. Same is true for us. So we as believers need to be aware of rebelling against God as the Israelites did by failing to trust and obey him. If you want to, let's jump over to 1 Corinthians. New Testament book. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now just listen, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 1. And I want you to just listen to this in context with what we're learning in Deuteronomy. Listen to this like God is speaking to you and reminding you of his grace. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and that all passed through the sea. That sounds familiar. That's a summary of Deuteronomy chapter 9. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was, church, Christ. Woo! I didn't think the Old Testament talked about Jesus. Not true. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You cannot separate from the Old Testament. You've got to... Keep yourself connected to the Old Testament. It's so important. Six, now these things took place. Why, God? Why did those things took place? Well, I'll tell you. They took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them as it were written. The people sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some sort of them did. And 23,000 fell in one single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. This is important. Therefore, if anyone, who thinks that he stands, is prideful with a self-righteous spirit, heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And then you know the rest of the passage of Scripture. What he's saying here is, you need just as much grace as the Israelites needed. 
We are every bit as much indebted to God and his grace as the Israelites were in the wilderness. Now go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 and look at verse 25. I know we jumped a lot of passages. That's all right. Now Moses is going to pray a prayer. And in Moses' prayer, he's going to pray for the people because of their rebellion. This is important. This prayer offers an answer to the question of why do we live off grace and a model to follow. Moses' prayer is a model to follow in overcoming a self-righteous spirit. Let's read it. Verse 25. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord has said he would destroy you. You know people in this world who are going straight to hell, and we don't pray for them for five minutes. Moses spends 40 days on them. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people. They're your heritage. Why are we not praying this for our unsaved friends and family members? Why are we not praying this for the church? You have redeemed them through your grace, your greatness, who you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants. Remember God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land which you brought us to say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought us out to put them to death in the wilderness. Moses is using hypotheticals. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. There's two things that pop up in Moses' prayer that help us to overcome the self-righteous spirit and keep our ego in check. Number one, there is a sincerity of prayer. Moses mentions 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in verse 18. He shows his sincerity as well as his understanding of the situation's gravity. He is totally concerned with God's glory and God's reputation on earth. Church, can we just pause for a second and just ask ourselves that question? Am I totally concerned with God's glory and reputation on earth in everything I think, say, and do? How well are we doing being a mirror for people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ? That when I go to work tomorrow, that when I spend time with people tomorrow, I am concerned with their spiritual well-being. I'm concerned that God's glory and his reputation is at stake in everything you think, say, and do. The reason some people do not come to know Jesus is because you don't look a lot like Jesus. Number two, Moses also says, be selfless in your motives. He didn't plead for Israel in a selfish way. He simply reminded God that Israel was his own inheritance. It was a promise to the patriarchs. God's destruction of Israel would call into question his ability to fulfill his promise. This prayer contains no self-seeking on Moses' part. Instead, it was out of concern for God's reputation and a desire for him to demonstrate once again that by his grace, he would forgive stubbornness, wickedness, and sin. It says that his inheritance, whom he delivered out of Egypt by his power and outstretched arm. So we see mercy and power of God through Moses' prayer. And we would ask ourselves, do we pray that same way? If you find yourself with that little cup of dirt and a little silver, uh, just this seed that's come out, 
Because I think all of us would agree with that, right? We all have that little cup, right? We're all, we're all in that boat. And we look at God and we say, look what I've done. And he says, is it what you've done or is it what I have done? And so we pray with sincere and selfless motives. We cast all of those up to the Lord and we say, create in me a clean heart. Your glory, your reputation is on the line. When we pray only for the things that are consistent with God's glory, we have hearts that are set on the right thing. Now, let's jump over into Jesus. And remember, Jesus said that if you repent of your self-righteous spirit and become poor in spirit, that's where holiness starts. So we go back to Isaac and we ask, what did Isaac do? Isaac's got two choices. He can either, one, continue in his own self-righteousness and look at the old man and say, yep, look what I did. Isn't that a great sliver of grass better than any plant in your garden? Or he can humble himself and go back to the man and he can say, you know what? I failed. How do I find true fruit? Help me learn. That's humility. Secular thought says happy are successful, powerful, rich people. I didn't say monetarily, I just meant in this way. But God says that it's only when we realize that we're poor in spirit, needy, and spiritually dead that we are saved and find success. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, But on this one I will look, the person who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. When you come to the Lord empty-handed and say, you know what, God, I tried to do it my way, but I need help to do it some other way. He looks at us and says, there, that is the heart that I can work on. That's where happiness lies. That's where joy lies. So we pray those prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at Moses' prayer, we know that We are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And our ego gets in the way because we forget your grace. And so we come before you this morning and we simply ask, first of all, for your forgiveness of our sins. And we ask, God, that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation that you would create in us clean hearts and that you would help us to tremble at your word. This week, God, we ask that in every victory that you give us, in the giving and taking away of anything, you would help us to remember that it's not because we're good people or bad people. It's simply because you keep your promises. And so may we give you the credit for everything that you do this week. May we remember that you lavish your gifts upon us because of your grace. If we find ourselves frustrated, help us to rely on you in prayer. And to be sincere in those prayers and be selfless in those prayers. Help us to hear the words that we're even saying in our prayers. God, we would ask that you would... Open our eyes and our ears to the fact that it's grace, grace, your grace that is greater than all of our sins. And it is there that we have the opportunity to tremble at your word and 
And in those moments, we find ourselves maturing more in our relationship with you. God, give us a, a desire. And help us to be mindful of these truths as we make your son Jesus known both near and far. And all God's people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.